One of the most misunderstood of all Buddhist teachings is the teaching on suffering. And it's common for people to believe that the Buddha taught that life is suffering. You hear that a lot, but that's, that's inaccurate. Um, Buddhism acknowledges the obvious fact that life is, it's a mix. It contains, you know, happiness and unhappiness, pleasure, pleasure and pain. Um, now, it's, uh, it's going to be a, a, the mix is going to be different for each of us. So if you're dealing with chronic pain or illness or depression or you're going through financial hardship or a personal loss, whatever, you're going to be kind of leaning, there's going to be more of a predominance of the suffering than the happiness. But all of us have, you know what suffering is and all of us, you know, have, have, have had moments of happiness. So it's a mix. Um, you know, life's not suffering. And if, a perfect example, if any of you notice those cookies, they're sold in the back here. I noticed them. I didn't, I wanted one too, don't get me wrong. But I just, so it wasn't renunciation, it was willpower. Those things, and they're huge, and they just, they look good, they smell good, and, and they taste good. When you, re- for those of you who ate a cookie, when you were eating that cookie, there's no suffering. There's no suffering there. So that's not quite where, what the teaching is aiming towards. Um, in order to understand uh, the teaching on suffering, we have to back up a bit. And, uh, well, first, the word that's, you don't need to know these poly terms, but there's a few that are probably worthwhile to know. And uh, one of them is the word that's, the word that's translated as, as suffering, and it's dukkha, D-U-K-H-A. And um, I really feel that a better translation of that word would, um, would either be unreliable or unsatisfactory. And what do I mean by that? Well, to understand that, we have to back up again to one of the foundational teachings that if you stick around the Dharma scene for any length of time, you'll hear over and over, which is the teachings on impermanence. And I think it's obvious, you know, it's taught, we know, we don't live our lives as if it's true, but certainly intellectually we all know that no experience we have is going to last. So eating that cookie is not a problem. As lo- we can enjoy it and we can we, you know, experience all of life the problem comes if I think that that cookie or any experience is going to do more for me than it's capable of doing. That's the real teaching on dukkha. So when we say life is, uh, has an unreliable quality to it, um, you know, all of us, whether we're conscious of it or not, are basically, I think, for all human beings, are trying to, you know, what do we do? What are we spending our time doing? We're trying to get or have or keep more of those people, situations, things, experiences that make us, that we want, that make us happy and and avoiding those that make us unhappy, right? No one here is trying to have less of what you want and more of what you don't want to happen to in your life. No one. So, I mean, it sounds kind of nonsensical. It's so, it's kind of ridiculous or obvious, but there's a lot of Dharma there because um, that's, you know, we want to, con- look, we want to take care of life in the 
everyday sense, right? You want to get your needs met. Um, you know, we need um, safety and health and shelter. And if you're struggling financially, uh, that needs to be dealt with and taken care of. Um, we need to take care of not only personal safety and well-being in the ordinary sense, but also societal around issues of, of you know, social justice or racism or homophobia or, you know, a financial system that's not rigged and all, all these kind of things and if individually and societal. Dharma's not throwing any of that away in, the, in just the regular sense. It's just adding in one piece. And it's inviting us to, in addition to happiness that's tied up in having or not having certain experiences, it's also inviting us to start to make a shift in how we look for happiness so that it's not just about the experience. It can also start to be about how we relate to what happens, how we relate to an experience, right? And um, now, I should also say... um, Well, I'm hesitating to say, well, I'm just going to say it. it. You know, in a way, it's a privilege to be able to, this isn't the main theme I want to talk about tonight, but I think it's kind of a privilege to be able to reflect in this way. So, for example, you think of what's big in the news these days. There's, there's suffering all over the world. Pick one. Uh, the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, I'm guessing if you're desperate enough that you're taking a a boat across the Aegean Sea and risking your life to end up, who knows how it's going to work out there. You know, you, what that person need, you know, you're not going to say to that person, well, what you need is to let go of clinging, <laughs> right? It's disrespectful and it's not helpful. They need safety, right? And all that. So uh, to be in a situation to reflect in these ways, I do think it's, in a way, it's, um, it's, it's a privilege to be there. And I never, I don't take it for granted. So as, as for all of us, I have my own suffering in my life. I have my happiness and all that. But um, I'm fortunate. I, have, I, I can also reflect on, on these uh, other situations, uh, uh, these other teachings. And I say this because I'm focusing tonight on these teachings around uh, suffering and non-clinging, but I want to be very respectful and really name that, you know, yet, you know, you came here, you're in a Buddhist Dharma center, you obviously value uh, formal meditation practice. That's actually the main theme I want to talk about tonight is around meditation practice. What I'm trying to do now is set a little of the context that will help us really understand the range of ways that meditation is taught, taught and practiced because it can be a confusing world out there. And I'll say, come back to that in a few moments. But I'm just pausing for a moment because I want to be real respectful because I look around, there must be, what, there's more than 100 people here. Some of us might be doing just great in life. Statistically, some of us are not going to be doing, you know, it's going to be hard. And we want to really acknowledge that that's important and real and needs to be, you know, we, needs to be also addressed, you know, in the appropriate way. You know, um, I remember a time when um, I was really going through a hard time and um, 
this was early in my meditation practice, I was on a retreat, and I mean, just some psychological, emotional, deep wounded places around my self-esteem and despair and things like that were really just roaring up. And I went to the teacher and talking about it, and you know, it's just I couldn't find the way to work with it. And so, the, you know, the teacher gave me the instruction: well, just be mindful of what's happening. And um, you know, it really wasn't that helpful for me. Uh, you know, that's a good instruction when when we have enough, when either we can bring the intensity down around what's happening to a level where we can work with it or bring our ability up to be, to be able to be with things. But some things are too much for us. If something's really too much for us, the instruction is not just be mindful of it. The instruction is try to fix it if you can. Because if a situation really is too much for us, I mean, really, and we can't find a way to bring down the intensity or fix it or change it or do something, that's real suffering. That's a lot of suffering. So we need a lot of compassion for ourselves as for all of us, you know, we'll have times like that uh, as fellow sufferers. So this, I'm going to come back again and talk about this place of compassion for others, but also self-compassion is so important, I think foundational in here. right? But we want to be able to then so take care of what we need to, but also learn to reflect around these teachings of impermanence and what is this dukkha unreliable, life's not always in our control. You know, I was saying before that really I believe that just as human beings, it's not like uh, criticizing, but I think that's what human beings do. We want to have more of what we want happen to us, more pleasant, and we want less unpleasant things to happen to us. And, you know, but at the end of the day, what happens? Well, you, um, sometimes you get what you want, sometimes you don't, and sometimes you get what you don't want. And so another way to think about the Dharma, it's the invitation, it's asking us the question, well, what are you going to do with you get what you get? What are you going to do? And this is this idea of learning to start to shift our relationship with what happens. So let's take care of ourselves, fix things when we can. It's the serenity prayer. And I always mess it up, but it's, it's saying, God, give me the... Somebody help me out here. What is it? It's... Yeah. Right. Change what, what I... The wisdom or... Serenity. Sex things I cannot change. Right. Change the things I can. Wisdom, know the difference. There's a lot of dharma in there, right? Because things are constantly changing, right? Um, the 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 teaching really is talked about. It's sometimes um, summarized as a liberation through non-clinging. Then, because things are changing, because no experience is going to last. If I'm holding on to things, if I'm clinging, if I think it has to be some way, that's when it real, the, the word suffering, that is suffering then. If I can learn to be more in harmony with the changing flow of life, it doesn't mean I stop trying to influence the course of things. But then moment by moment, as you get what you get, if I can learn to be more in harmony with that, we don't suffer so much, right? So... Um, this, this liberation through non-clinging is, is really getting down to the heart of things. In, uh, here in California, 
when you uh, get your uh, driver's license renewed, you know, you go down to the DMV, get your picture taken. A few weeks later, the driver's license comes in the mail. There it is, there's your picture. And so I did that, and then five years later, uh, I got a renewal by mail. I didn't have to go in and get a picture. I just, you know, sent the check and filled out the form and mailed it off. And a few weeks later, new driver's license, new expiration date came. But it was the same picture five years ago. Okay, it's my new driver's license. Five more years come, same thing. Um, renewal by mail. So it comes back, same old picture. Yep, that's me. And didn't think much about it. Five more years, now it's been 15 years since the picture. Now I'm, I, have to, uh, um, I have to go down and get a new picture. I go down to the DMV, get the new picture taken. A few weeks later, the, the new driver's license come. I open it up. I take the old one out of my wallet, and it's just like, look at the new picture, the old picture. And it was like, what? the hell happened? <laughs> and then I look in the mirror and all of a sudden I notice there's some old guy looking back at me. And it's like, what happened? You know, where did my youth go? Right? And, you know, it's like nothing went wrong. It's just what happens. If we're clinging to our... That's another example. It's not only clinging to external circumstances, if we're clinging to our bodies or to our youth, that's not a wise or reliable way to seek happiness. I was a, um, um, for many years, I was, uh, I was a real active rock climber. I still climb some um, with a group of old guys now. We get up and kind of hobble up to the rock, and it's kind of funny, some of these, you know, I'm the young guy in the group. I'm 63, and uh, but uh, in, my, in my youth, I was a pretty decent climber for my day. I was a good climber. And um, I remember being in Yosemite with some other... I was actually on the older side for some of the climbers then. I was in my 30s, and some, one person... We There's this one wall we were going to climb up, and somebody was looking up and said, Wow, you notice there aren't any old people up here. And I said, uh, I said to, to my friend, That's not going to be me. I'm going to keep it up. I had no idea of how the body slows down and what happens. No concept. And it doesn't matter. I, you know, I still exercise a lot, and I eat organic vegetables, and I meditate, so I have stress reduction and all that, and it's just like, you just, I couldn't know. And, and I see there's a wide range of ages here, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and some of you are, are going to find out. <laughs> and again, nothing is going wrong. This is what happens. So the idea of this letting go of clinging then, um, if I'm okay with kind of the way things are, if I can just be at peace with the process, um, I don't suffer. If I'm holding on to my youth, I do. So this idea, you know, when then we hear these teachings and we might think, okay, I, I get this. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm signing up for that. Um, this liberation through non-clinging, that sounds like a good idea. And maybe 
it's kind of there's some wisdom there and I should, I should listen to that and follow that. And then what will happen is, in case you haven't noticed this, um, it won't take long before you'll find all the ways where you, you cannot let go. You know, you might be able to uh, live with a quiet mind, an open heart, and then all it takes is the right cause and condition to come together and you're hooked right back again, and you don't even know it until you wake up out of the trance of what's happening. Right? This is the reason why we need some training, some mind training. This is really a, the place for the meditation. Right? To, we need to train our minds to more fully be able to let go. We need to train our hearts to be able to stay open and not close off to situations and people in a wider range of circumstances. I have an aspiration, uh, a sincere, real aspiration, that my heart never closes off, ever, period. I take that really seriously. And I have a lot of opportunities to see where there's more work to be done. Right? More work to be done. You know, I can go sit a retreat or meditate at home and I'm uh, just, you know, radiating love for all beings. Then I get in my car and I drive home and I actually encounter actual beings. And all of a sudden, <laughs> maybe not always so easy. Those pesky people, right, who are annoying me or whatever. So, and I like to hold it with that spirit of when, when, I get, when I see a place where my heart does close off, um, I like to hold it with that spirit of, oh, that was actually a gift. Given that that's one of my aspirations, you may have similar, similar or maybe you'll have your own aspirations. Right? But whatever it is for us, when then something comes and we get caught or hooked or, or fall away from, we're not actualizing it in the moment. Right? maybe I'm in ill will rather than a heart of love, um, I would rather see the, the, the potential for that to happen than not. So it's actually doing me a favor. It's kind of unmasking a potential there that maybe I hadn't seen. You don't have to go looking for these things. These situations, well, they'll find you, right? So, but in order to see that more clearly, this is another piece of the mental training. So we want to learn how to let go, Learn how to keep our hearts open. When they do close, we want to have more skill in, in not faking it, but actually letting go and staying open in the present. And the other thing is we, we want to be able to see what's going on in our minds on ever subtler levels so that we really do see when we, on subtler and subtler levels when we get caught. And we also see on subtler levels when we really are resting in the stream of non-clinging. Right? So these are some of the reasons, uh, from a Dharma perspective, uh, uh, why the mental training, the meditation can help us. So what I want to do with the rest of the time here is say a little bit about some of the foundational elements. Meditation is taught and practiced in many, many ways. Some of the foundational elements uh, that go into uh, meditation, and then they're combined in different ways, and then talk about some different branches of the meditation family um, and try to, you know, some of you may have a lot of clarity, but for some people there can be a lot of confusion. As a matter of fact, that's what I was addressing in my book there about uh, 
how does, what's concentration, what's insight, mindfulness, how these fit together, the different ways they're taught in practice. And then I hope we'll have a little time um, for some, open it up for the group uh, discussion also. That's the intention for the rest of the evening. So there are several, I'll offer what I think are um, maybe three or four foundational building blocks for meditation practice in all its various forms. The first one I'll offer is, uh, which I think is, foundation, is the most foundational and important, is self-compassion. And this isn't the Buddha, this is just my own take on it. You'll sometimes hear what, um, it's said that what is foundational for Dharma practice is there's this word in Pali, sila, S-I-L-A, sila, which is often translated as virtue morality, sometimes ethical behavior. You'll sometimes hear talk about what's called the precepts. There's a list of guidelines to help us to live by. Non-harming, non-stealing, not creating suffering around sexuality, wise speech, not abusing intoxicants, these kind of things. So it's, it's ethical or, or living from a place of virtue. And there is, that is foundational, but I actually feel like self-compassion is even more basic than that. Because we can all find ways to be hard on ourselves. Some of us, you know, more than others. And it can be so easy to tear ourselves down and find everything that's wrong with us. And think that's the whole picture and not see all that's right and good. And... Um, even when we undertake something that's as wholesome and good, and I, I like the word beautiful, as to live from, from a place of virtue. I happen to like the word virtue a lot, but from, from ethical, ethics or morality with the precepts. That's a beautiful thing, and then we go undertake it. And then, you know, if we don't have compassion for ourselves and kindness for ourselves... Um, that can turn into just another way to beat ourselves up and tear ourselves down and see all the ways that we're no good and can't do it and don't live up to, to, to our standard. Every one of us is a mix of what I would call wholesome and unwholesome forces, impulses and motivations. By definition, until we're all Buddhas ourselves, um, there are still places of greed, hatred, and delusion in our minds or the potential seeds of that. So you're not doing anything wrong when negativity arises in you or some difficulty or you screw up and cause suffering or in a situation for yourself or for others. Right? That's what we're working on. And in fact... Um, people sometimes will judge themselves by how well or poorly they think they're showing up in life or in certain situations. But I think that's a, a mistaken um, way to, uh, view, to judge ourselves. First of all, there's this, another Pali term, manas, conceit. And this is very interesting. The Buddha said, if you think you're better than someone, that's conceit. We can all relate to that. And he goes on, if you think you're less than someone, it's conceit. 
And if you think you're equal to someone, it's conceit. That's pretty interesting, this word manas. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about this self-absorbed way of, you know, always judging and compare how I'm, I'm standing up. I'm, I'm, I'm standing in relationship to others. That's what he's talking about, which is not helpful, right? And it just creates suffering. If we bring wise discernment to ourselves, what we see is, is that we're a mix. And what we, if we're going to judge ourselves, Buddha suggests, I mean, I'm not saying not having wise discernment, but if we're judging ourselves in kind of the unho- unhelpful way, if you're going to do it anyway, I would like to propose that a more accurate way to do it and a more helpful yardstick to measure yourself by is not by how well or poorly you judge yourself to be showing up, but by your intention. By your intentions. That speaks what's more, about what's more deeply true about you, about every one of us. How well or poorly then we show up, uh, well, those are the condition patterns that we're working on. So you may have an intention to, you know, be whatever, you know, less reactive in certain situations. And then you run into situations and then and you find, you know, it's not like you're perfectly pure and never get reactive again. Well, because we still have our learning edges. But you have it. Even when that happens, your good, sincere intentions didn't fall away. Right? If, if I find that my heart is closing off in a situation, I haven't lost my beautiful aspiration. It's still there. Right? I just got caught in the moment. That's what we're working on. So um, holding ourselves with self-compassion and kindness, I think, is so important and foundational. And that could be a person's whole practice, is to learn how to do that. We may not know how to be kind to ourselves, but we can just start with the wish or the intention to want to try to move in a deepen it in some way that's enough and we'll, we'll find our way through and it will grow so I think that's foundational so self-compassion we could say kindness for ourselves and then the next one after that mindfulness which is talked about all the time you know and um, you know, mindfulness is talked about in many ways. It's defined in a number of ways. I'll give you my definition. My definition of mindfulness is very simple. It just means not being lost on automatic pilot. You know, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes uh, if we lose our mindfulness or get caught up in things, someone might say that we, we went unconscious. And we know what's meant, but we didn't actually go unconscious. We're conscious. We're just completely caught up and lost in something and not aware. And when we kind of wake up out of the trance of something and actually know what's happening in the moment, we're more present and awake with what's happening. We're being mindful. We are mindful of what's happening. So I have a simple definition of that. And we can be mindful of anything. We can be mindful of what's going on in our own minds and hearts and our own bodies. We can be mindful of what's happening in others. We may not know their whole inner experience, but we're starting to 
And that can often be a doorway into empathy for others when we start to bring the compassion piece in. And rather than being caught in reactivity, just to be mindful of, of seeing what's going on with others. We can be mindful of how we're relating to other situations or other people. And by doing that, of course, it creates a space between whatever happens and our response to it. So hopefully it gives us enough space to have a wise response rather than just reactivity. So that's the mindfulness. Okay, so we have self-compassion, mindfulness. And then the next uh, piece in, that, that we're cultivating in meditation is the quality that's often called concentration. And that's another one of these words. Um, in Sanskrit and Pali, the word is samadhi. Samadhi. And it actually means undistracted. But when people say constant, I don't personally like the word concentration because it has so many connotations. But it basically means our minds become, rather than being jumping all over the place and scattered, we're actually really present and steady, right? And, our, and we can really uh, be more still and present, less distracted. Right? And we cultivate concentration by using the power of mindfulness in a particular way. So, for example, I was talking about um, tonight I offered a few little instructions on what's really called mindfulness of breathing. That was using our mindfulness to connect with your breathing. That's just one of many practices. And I should say, I meant to say this earlier, that uh, breath meditation is not the best practice for everyone. For many people, it's a good practice. But there are people for whom uh, nothing's wrong. It's just, I could name various reasons why it's not a good practice. And there's many, many other practices. I won't go into them here. Uh, come talk to me if you're interested or talk to other teachers. Uh, they just as, work just as well. You can be mindfulness of sounds. Anyway, a lot of different practices. But by turning our mindfulness over and over back towards, say, for example, connecting with our breathing, we're training the mind to learn how to, the concentration strengthening, to learn how to be more steady. It's a steadying of the mind and undistractedness of the mind. The mind comes to stillness, right? And... I don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but let me just say that it's a big world about concentration. It's not just one way. Concentration manifests and unfolds and progresses in many, many different ways. It's not just one way. And a lot of experiences start to happen. You know, you get more, you drop more deeply into your meditation. Concentration's deepened. And you can feel very pleasant feelings happen. Energies can move in your body. You can feel spacious, calm, peaceful. Some people hear sounds, see lights. A lot of things can happen, and usually very pleasant. Um, not always, but mostly. And so, um, and not only is the experience of the samadhi, of the concentration, highly individual, but the techniques that people teach in order to cultivate the concentration, it's just a big world out there. So the only thing I want to say about it for this talk is sometimes it can be confusing because there's a number of teachers, and some of them are my friends, and I've talked to them about this. They'll say, okay, you've got to practice like this. And it's just one way. 
And there's some other teacher saying, no, no, no. Not only is that wrong, but you've got to do it this one way. And there's a whole lot of people who are teaching mutually exclusive paths. What I want to say is, is that the, um, the only thing they're saying wrong, all of those paths are good for the people for whom they work. It, because we're all different, you know, we're all unique. No matter what practice or technique we gave, for some people it would work great and for other people it wouldn't work well or might even be counterproductive. So that's good news because what it means is there's not just one way out there. We've got to find like the right way. It's not true. The reason there's so many paths out there is because people have, great masters have followed that path. It's really worked for them. And so that's what they're teaching. And the only mistake that happens is they think, well, this clearly was powerful and it worked, and they don't understand that there's people have also practiced in other paths and ways that have worked for them. It's not just one way. And even if we all did exactly the same practice here, it would unfold differently for all of us. So what we want to be interested in is what's, what of all these different paths and techniques are we drawn to, are we getting benefit from, what works best for us. And again, I don't have time to go into a lot of details just on the realm of concentration. If you're interested, uh, I'm going to do a day long here on that topic, on uh, bringing mindfulness, concentration, insight together as one path. And sometime in the spring here, and you come for that, or you know, read other people's books, mine, whatever, and you can start to learn about this big world. So we've got the self-compassion. We, use, we cultivate mindfulness. We direct our mindfulness skillfully in a way that helps strengthen the concentration. And then that's the quality of, of clarity. What happens when our minds become more concentrated? Um, we have a level, our perception, our, our experiencing, our knowing and sensing is on a whole other level. And a way that I sometimes say it Actually, either of these images work. You could say it's turning the mind into a Hubble telescope and an ele- or an electron microscope. I think either image works. And it's just amazing because now we're perceiving on whole other levels. It's that quality of mind that we can turn to the last foundational element I want to bring in, which is insight. Right? And so insight is also talked about in a lot of ways. Again, I, I don't have time to go into it in depth. It's, a, it's another big world. But the way I define insight is um, it's any understanding or perception or something we know or just come to realize that uh, supports the liberation through non-clinging. I would call that insight. There are traditional, classic ways that insight is said to unfold. You're supposed to have you know, these deep insights into impermanence and into dukkha, this suffering, and into no self. And I'm just sort of naming those without defining them. And I realize that just because of time. Um, but uh, you know, they, they tend to come more out of, in general, sort of the understanding is they come more out of deep meditative states those may not be the most important insights. Um, how about all the times when you sit to meditate 
and you don't have the support and the ally to support you of the concentration, and you're having a hard time. The mistake that happens is that we sometimes think, oh, the meditation's going wrong, it's falling apart. But it's not. It's just what's happening in the moment. That's an important time. We don't want to miss the opportunities that it has to offer us for learning how to be with something unpleasant and to let go of our suffering around knee pain or heartache or whatever it is. So um, not only can we have these uh, insights that come out of uh, these states of deep clarity in, in concentration and meditation, but also for all the times when your body hurts, mind won't settle down, having a rough time. That's a tremendous place for learning, and we don't want to miss the opportunity that those times have. Not, we can, but not only that, there's all the rest of our lives when we're not in formal meditation practice, and a lot of insight comes then. And it could be that that's certainly at least equally as important, and it may be the most important times of all. We get to go through our lives, and like I was saying, I was getting a little bit of a laugh, but I said, you know, you can sit in meditation radiating loving kindness for all beings, and then you go out and we actually encounter real people in our lives in real situations, and that's an important place for learning. Sometimes things we actually get kind of covered over. You don't have a chance to see them until that pattern gets kind of lit up in the mind. We can have psychological in, in, uh, insights. You know, uh, I've found a lot of be- benefit in psychotherapy in my life. Psychotherapy, or, or well, I should back off, psychological insights are not inherently leading to Dharma insights, but they certainly may because we may see patterns and all of a sudden we come for, I don't know, we come to realize that um, maybe you're meditating and you realize there's a tension in your belly. Huh, let me, what's going on there? And maybe you put your attention on it, you feel it, and you stay with it, and you realize there's some anxiety there, maybe. I'm just making up a, you know, for example. And then stay with that, and all of a sudden you had a memory of times when you've been anxious at other times in your life, and you realize that, um, you know, whatever, your childhood wasn't safe or something like that, and memories come, and then all of a sudden you realize that maybe I have a stance in life that life's not safe, or and I not, tend not to be relaxed, or I try, I try to control or whatever it is, and a lot can let go around that, just as an example. That's a psychological insight that can really lead to real liberation through non-clinging. So insights can happen, I'll just say, on lots and lots of levels. That's what I want to really just say. And again, it's a, quite a big topic. But it's not just one way that these things happen. All right, so those are the building blocks. Now I just want to add one last piece in, and then that will be the end of what I want to, the piece I want to talk about tonight. These building blocks, self-compassion, mindfulness, concentration, insight, get combined in different ways in the way that meditation practice gets taught. And I want to name three main branches of the meditation family and say just a little bit about each one. So there's meditation that's called insight meditation. That's kind of here. You come to a place like this. Most of what is taught, I think they would call vipassana. That's the Pali, insight meditation. 
there's what's called concentration meditation. Spirit Rock teaches a, a class, a, a retreat here called the Concentration Retreat, which I've taught a few times. By the virtue of the fact that they're calling this one retreat the Concentration Retreat, it's telling you they're having a different emphasis than all the other retreats. So there's that path. Then there's a third path, and this is the way I happen to practice and teach, which brings concentration, insight, mindfulness together as one path of meditation. Mindfulness, concentration, and insight are not the same thing, but there actually is a way to practice where it really is just one path. And I just want to say a little about each of these. And again, there's no right or wrong, no better than or worse than. It's just different emphasis, and we have to see where we're drawn. It's all valuable and good equally. In the path of insight meditation... Of course, people want the mind to settle a certain amount. That's the concentration. But the emphasis will be on directing the... There's a lot of ways it's taught. So I'm, this is simplistic and, and it's not... But I'm just... It's the basic ideas. You may want to bring your attention to connect with just the, all of the changing experiences that you have in your body, and your mind, in order to connect with, say, the, the fact of impermanence or other characteristics of your experience. You want to have insights into the changing flow of experience. So you tend, want to just connect with whatever's predominant moment by moment. That's just one of the ways insight meditation is taught. And you may not be concerned about specifically deepening concentration because just by bringing your mindful attention moment to moment to whatever's happening, you know, your breathing, thoughts, knee pain, emotions, whatever's going on, you'll get all the concentration you need. So the emphasis is more on looking into just the changing flow of your experience. In the path of concentration meditation, because having that clear, really clear mind is such an aid for insight, the emphasis will tend to be on cultivating very specific states of concentration not really necessarily worrying about the insight side. And taking concentration actually quite far, sometimes you'll hear this term jhana. Don't worry if you don't know what that is, but um, it's, it's these very deep states of concentration, and that's a big world too, how jhana is defined. It's not just one way. Practices that lead to jhana is not just one way. And then people practicing in this style may only turn their, their, their awareness to insight meditation when they have, um, only after having attained a pretty high degree of concentration, because they see that it's very valuable, then, then the insights, that, that's, the, the, that's where, the, the, where what they see is helpful. The, the insights come on deeper levels because you can really kind of penetrate deeper and more subtly into your experience. In the path, by the way, there's another path that I didn't really bring that could be a separate path, and that's these heart paths like metta, loving-kindness meditations and compassion, which is a whole family also. And that can be seen as a separate path, although um, I'm not separating it out here because 
I want to bring the heart practices into all the ways I'm talking and, and integrate them in. For example, talking about the self-compassion and kindness to ourselves. So, so I just wanted to name that if you want to separate that out as another branch in the meditation family, you know, that's fine too. And then finally, there's a path in which it's really think of it as one path of meditation, mindfulness, concentration, insight, all brought together where we value both sides of the practice uh, equally, and we want to take both of them. We're not doing one at the exclusion of the other. And the way that works is quite simple. You have whatever your practice or technique is, that's your, like say you're staying with your breath, and you just keep really giving pretty strong emphasis to the breath. And by doing that, you'll get more concentrated. And you, you just don't worry about anything. You just take the concentration as far and as deep as you want to take it. And there's a lot to be said about working with the various stages that unfold. But basically, you're just kind of emphasizing the concentration side. Really giving a lot of emphasis to your breath or some other practice. On its own, without you doing anything to make it happen... You're going to have times when you can't concentrate. Or your body's going to hurt. Or emotions come up, or memories, or your psychology, or all this other stuff comes up that you need to deal with. You're on the insight side of the practice. right? And, we, and rather than struggling to get back to your breath and in your deep concentration, we let our present moment experience tell us what's needed, and we open to that. And then we learn, depending on what's happening, how do I work with this skillfully? And so that's the insight side. And then at some point, it'll just settle out, and, you'll, and you've worked with it, you're able to concentrate again, you're back on the concentration side. And then you don't have to worry about anything. Just stay with your breath, keep deepening the concentration. And in this way, we let the changing flow of our experience, we just need to stay open and attuned to what's actually happening in the present moment. And then... Um, know how to work in the present moment skillfully. And in this way, we kind of flow or surf effortlessly back and forth between kind of the emphasis on the concentration side and the emphasis on the insight side. And uh, we get kind of the best of both. And we, you don't, then you don't have to, ch- if you're doing concentration, you don't have to change to another kind of meditation called insight meditation. They all come together. That's just a little basic overview. And again, that's more my style that I've always practiced and that I teach in. So we have these different styles. Um, And again, the main thing, just to wrap up, is none of these are right or wrong. And so then the question, well, how do you find your right way? It's really simple. Um, Maybe you've gone to a retreat here at Spirit Rock or a certain teacher comes through and you just feel a connection with the way they're teaching and so you try it out. And you see how it works for you. And you'll be drawn to it. So we kind of trust our inner, our inner guidance, if you will, our intuition, our inner teacher. And then maybe we, you know, over time we get exposed to something else. You read a book, you hear a talk, someone tells you about something. And if it seems like something we're drawn to, we can, we can really follow and trust our inner knowing because it's all part of this big family of wise and skillful means. And uh, we can relax into it and just trust uh, the, sort of the Dharma. It really does. It's kind of a cliche. You know, the Dharma knows how to unfold and will reveal what we need when we need it. But I think that's really true. And, um, and then all we have to do is just be as honest as we can 
to uh, look to the results of what our practice is. And if something's working, um, we, uh, we stick with it. Um, if it's not working, we have to be willing just to let it go, and that's okay. And we also have to not worry about, you know, we can't see our own blind spots. By definition, that's why they're called a blind spot. So you don't worry about that. You only have to see what you can see. So I'll end with this quote that I love by um, an author. What was his name? E.L. Doctorow. And he talked about writing a novel, but I'm going to substitute in, for writing a novel, I'm going to substitute in Dharma practice because the, the image works beautifully. Dharma practice is like driving a car at night. You can only see as far as the headlights, but you can complete a journey of a thousand miles that way. And so we only have to be able to know and see what we can see. And it's enough. And just based on that, we make our best judgment to move forward in any aspect of life. And now we've moved forward, we'll be able to see a little further. And we see more. And, and sometimes what we see is, oh, don't go in the direction I was just going into. There's a wall ahead. Stop. Okay, but that, that was informing us. Even if we went down, took a wrong turn, it's all right. Because your good intention is what's going to guide you. As long as you stay in touch with your intention towards what's good and wholesome, and again, I like the word beautiful, not really a traditional Buddhist way to talk about it, but um, I like the word. Right. And so it may be helpful every day, perhaps, to spend time reflecting on your own good intentions. And then just do the best you can to live as attuned with them as you can. And I think that will that's really all we need. So thank you for your kind attention. I appreciate it. We have about <clears throat> 10 minutes. And so we can open up now. If anybody, if, if you have a comment, it's fine. If you have a question, we will, we will respect the time and end on time at, um, in, in, in 9.15. But anyone? Uh, I think someone, are you going to bring a mic around? Is that going to happen? Yeah, so just... Uh, <clears throat> I don't really need a microphone. So thank you, Richard. That was a good talk. The thing that struck me was, uh, I'm Christian. The thing that struck me the most was uh, when you talked about your driver's license picture and how 15 years went by and all of a sudden there was an old guy looking back at you from the mirror. And the thing about it is... is and it's only gotten worse since then. I know, right? And the thing about it is, is that nobody really tells you when you're younger what's going to happen. Like, your parents don't tell you. There's no social rule. Like, normally you say, okay, well, you get married, you have kids, you have a job. Or try. No one actually says, yeah, you're going to have diminished physical ability and you're di- you have to change your diet and you're going to have less diminished appetite and all these weird things start happening. No clue. But actually, maybe that's true. Um, you know, for me, I kind of think, of course, everybody's talking about it all the time. The part they don't add in is they say it and then it's like, no, really. 
No, really. <laughs> so I think it's important that the elders of our community, which we're becoming, right. like it or not, uh, transmit the knowledge to the younger members of the community that you should be mentally prepared <laughs> so that you don't get down on yourself. Right? That's kind of the whole point okay. of your talk in a way, is to have compassion for yourself. But I really wanted to address the idea of intentions because <clears throat> um, there's a Christian saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I notice sometimes when I have a good intention that it's, and it doesn't work out, then people judge me and say that I was doing something wrong. And so I feel like intentions are a two-edged sword. And I guess your message, I'm trying to reiterate so it's clear in my mind, is that if you have a good intention and something doesn't quite work out and people are judging you saying you didn't have good, your intentions weren't good, do you have to somehow bring insight to that? That's kind of, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I guess I would tend to say it in a little bit a different way than that. Um, yeah. That I do think intention is, I can't overstate the importance of it from, that I feel like. But when we, when we are pulled in a different way, when we, di- we, we actually didn't live in harmony with the intention, and maybe even we're pointing in the opposite way in some <laughs> way in our lives, uh, we need to, from, as Dharma practitioners, this is why the mind training is to really have the willingness to really look and see what happens. So, you know, if you ended up, you know, yelling at someone, say, for example, and, and treated someone poorly and that, that was not your intention, how you want to live, you know, to really own up and, and to be able to, first of all, it's, it's not going to feel good, so we're going to feel the, 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 the pain of it, but also to be able to go, you know, I did do that. You know, it, you're right. Just own it. But be honest with yourself. Be honest, but also then look to, just maybe, maybe it, we have to see it. It just depends. Maybe that's enough. Or maybe we need to spend a little time kind of, well, what, what happened then? Oh, yes, this is an old pattern. And, um, um, you know, I got hooked in this old pattern. So then we can look more closely, hopefully loosen it. So we just bring the, we do the best we can. That's really all I know to say. But, I, you know, this thing, the, 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 the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I understand what it's saying, but I, I just think it's too simplistic. You know, we, we uh, anyway. Thank you. Uh, yes, please. Thanks. Um, I was really moved by what you had to say. Um, what would you suggest to someone who's been dealing with uh, chronic illness for like 20 years and who deals with suffering on a daily basis and who's also suffering with an addiction? Um, <laughs> I don't mean to be glib here, but I mean, what, I don't even know the details, but just to say that suffering with chronic illness for 20 years and suffering with addiction, I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but I mean, that's huge. Yeah. And huge. Um, you do the, the, what I have to say is you do the best you can. I mean, I didn't, I have my own suffering. I actually myself suffer with, I call it chronic fatigue. I've had kind of my whole adult life. I mean, I, it, it's not like the people, I function fine with it, but sometimes it's, you know, it's up and down. And um, so I don't know if it's on that level, but I've certainly uh, dealt with a lot of suffering and um, I've made peace with it over a lot of years. And I know that there are people, I met a woman once in a wheelchair and her fingers were just totally twisted, I mean, really badly. 
and she was just beaming at me, and, and I, we were talking. I was at some Dharma center teaching, and she said, uh, was telling me about her, the chronic pain from, I guess, I think it was rheumatoid arthritis. And I that was she diagnosed with Lyme disease and yeah, yeah. other immunological diseases almost nine years ago. Yeah, yeah. And so the, I want to be very respectful because, I, you know, I'm not going to, really, you should be the one sitting up here uh, it, seriously teaching us about how have you know what have you done? How have you worked? What's worked? What hasn't? And everything you know, I I don't I haven't lived that, so I want to be really respectful. The reason I bring that woman in is that she was in. So I know it is possible. She told me that uh, I, I said to her, "Well, are you in pain right now?" And she said, "Yeah, I'm. I'm never out of actually pretty strong pain on on the on the level of one to ten. It was up there." Mm-hmm. And and I said, "Well, you know, you look." happy. And she says, uh, she never would have chosen that fire to go through. And of course, she just, and she's been through hell and, and it just, you know, beat the heck out of her for years. And, but somehow it's because there was no way, it's like I used to teach in prison uh, for many years. And um, I remember talking to one guy, he was doing life without the possibility of parole. We were talking about, he says, you know, some of these other guys here, you know, they're here for however many years, but at some point, they know they're going out. He says, for me, there's no, there's, I can't skate by. Whatever happens, I, I have to go through it because there's no way out. And it forced him, and he, was, and he said he's come to this place of great peace. And yes. So I know that people do it, mm-hmm. and at the same time, um, I think they did it with a lot of struggle and great suffering. And also, I want to say, I don't know how many people have gotten to that kind of place when you're really dealing with this kind of stuff. This is where, you know, we talk about the rubber hitting the road. And so I just want to kind of be respectful and bow and say that uh, that's when we need a lot of compassion from when it's it's a lot of suffering. And, you know, even the, the, it's not like pleasant, all of a sudden we come to some great place and now, you know, we were so liberated that, you know, new age music starts playing and flower petals start raining down from the sky. I don't think it's like that. I think it hurts and it's painful and we have to find our way the best we can. Um, and I just, I just don't know what to say more than that. I okay. think you do the best you can. Thank you. And I, I, I hope that's not too odd No, to no, say. I appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, what am I going to tell you? <laughs> So, yes, please. We're, we're almost to the time. Um. So my, uh, my friend and I were talking uh, earlier about a dilemma as I've um, tried to become a little bit more aware of things. And I work in downtown San Francisco. I encounter the homeless. And, you know, a couple of years ago I could walk by on my way to, you know, go shopping or some, uh, some, uh, uh, something that would distract me. Well, now that I'm trying to be more aware, I... I see people, they're clearly in pain, it yeah. might be raining like last week, right. and I, I feel, you know, I feel terrible, but I don't know what to do with that. Right. It's just sort of ugh. Right. Um, so maybe I'll give some money or give some money to a not-for-profit, but that doesn't really feel very satisfying. Right. So I wonder what you think. Well, yeah, so what I would say is this. I mean, I, I'm not going to tell you in that particular case, because there's a lot of ways you can, you know, sometimes I've got, in those kind of situations, there's probably many of us, sometimes I run across people who are asking for money or homeless, or whatever, and, and sometimes I'll go through, it's like, okay, somebody asks, I just give the money, and I did. Other times, it's like, well, wait a minute, a lot of people might be shooting it up their arm, and, and maybe I don't know, so maybe I, I don't give the money, and I just give, or maybe I, you know, I don't know what's right or wrong to do. These are, these are uh, they seem to be kind of intractable 
challenging problems that it's hard to solve. I, the only thing I know to say is I do know that um, to the extent our hearts stay open rather than closed and we're able to really be with things rather than turn away and responsive rather than reactive, I think we at least have the best chance to come up with the most skillful response. And, but, I mean, I don't know the specific thing to do. I think it's situationally dependent. I have times when my intuition is, I don't want to give to this person. It's just, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm tuned in or maybe I'm not. I, I feel like, you know, that's not going to, I don't know where that money's going. Other people, it's just like, my intuition is to help. You know, how much, so we have to see. But the main thing is, is there's a lot of suffering in this world. And when we care, if we care about our own suffering and that of others, then I think, I hope we want to be more open to really, our eyes are more open to what's going on around us, to what's going on in the world and the suffering of others. And I hope that will move us into some engagement in some way. But what that looks like, I think it's highly independent. I I just don't feel like I can say what it should look like. But I hope we'll at least be drawn to care about suffering and then find our best way. I just don't know more specific to say. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Um, so I'm sorry about the time. It's actually exactly 9.15. And we, I just want to respect the time. <coughs> I'm going to hang around a bit if you want to talk or something. You know, I'm not r- rushing out the door or anything. Um, let me just uh, take, if you need to get up, and, I'm going to take literally a minute or less. But certainly if you need to go, please just go and don't feel stuck here. Uh, it's fine to just get up and walk out. Let me slow down because I was sorry, I was rushing there a little. If for those who are here for the minute, um, I invite you, if you're not already doing so, to bring your mindfulness and check in with your body. Check in with the states of your heart and your mind, just your whole experience. And I invite you to notice not only what's happening with experience, but how are you relating with whatever's happening? So if there's some challenge or difficulty, maybe you're tired, maybe something that I or someone else said you liked or didn't like or whatever. And, you know, if there's some place where you're holding or there's some constriction or struggle or difficulty, see if you can bring a sense of letting be. Just letting be. Just do the best you can. And if there's something going on for which you cannot let go around it, then bring some acceptance to that place in you, the place that's just not able or ready to let go around it. That's the self-compassion and kindness for ourselves. May our wholesome, good, beautiful intentions inspire us to wise action in our personal lives and in the world. And through our good actions, may we be, may we be a light in the world. May we be a support for and a cause for less suffering for ourselves and for others. 
and for more well-being for ourselves and for others. May all beings everywhere be happy. May they be peaceful. And may all beings come to an end of suffering. Thank you all. Every thank you all. I appreciate letting me come and be with you this evening. And I, by the way, I did forget to mention: if any of you are in the East Bay, our organization is called Meta Two T's, M E T T A Meta Dharma Foundation. We meet on Wednesday nights. You're welcome to come join us, or you can just look up my name, Richard Shankman, and find us that way. So please enjoy your evening, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.